0: If you have your bibles please turn with me to 2nd chronicles chapter 16 we take a quick break from our study of luke's gospel and we turn to 2nd chronicles this morning and i will give everyone a little bit more time than usual to turn and find uh 2nd chronicles but uh just a wonderful rich lesson uh, in this chapter and so i thought it would be a benefit to us to turn here this morning 2nd chronicles chapter 16 We'll be reading the entire chapter uh, from one, verse 1 down to verse 14. This is what God's word says, beginning in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to king Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Eon, Dan, Abelmaim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Baasha had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time... Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from the first to last are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 40, 41st year of his reign. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious and good Father in heaven, as we have turned now to your word, we ask that you would turn and incline our hearts to your testimonies, that we would be sensitive to the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us through your word, and that we would take heed and learn and receive by faith all that you have preserved for us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read through the accounts of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, we come across a number of bad kings, a large number, and a number, a small number, of good kings. But it's actually not so simple as just classifying them as good versus bad, at least not always. Because I think sometimes, as we read the lives of various individuals throughout the Bible, we always want a very neat black and white categorization That the good people were all good always, and the bad people were all bad always. But life and human nature is much more complex than that. Case in point here, as we look at the life of King Asa. Now, who was King Asa? Well, he was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, this is after the split between the north and the south during Rehoboam's reign. And so Asa was Rehoboam's grandson, meaning he was Solomon's great-grandson. And so all this to say, King Asa reigned about a hundred years after King David. And now by God's grace, Asa was deemed a good king to begin his reign. He had a great start to his tenure as king. But he didn't end very well. And so it's kind of difficult to find a clear black and white label to stick onto his life. The line seems rather kind of fuzzy, but it's precisely this fuzziness that communicates a vital lesson to us because the point is this, that throughout the course of our lives as believers, we are constantly facing spiritual dangers that seek to pull us away from the straight and narrow path of lifelong and enduring faithfulness. And here, the trajectory of King Asa's life has been preserved in Scripture for us to draw our attention to one specific danger. That is, that your resourcefulness, your skillfulness in life can prove to be a serious spiritual disadvantage. And although every talent and skill and every measure of intellect and resource that you have, although it is all a gift from God that he has stewarded to you, and they should be cultivated and maximized and used to his glory, you must also be very careful to keep watch of your own hearts. Because left unchecked, those very things, your capability, your ingenuity, can and will serve to inflate your pride and breathe the parasite of self-sufficiency and lead your heart away from the lord and that's what we see in king asa's life as he got older as he got more experienced as he grew in savviness he became more self-reliant and more distanced from god and this is especially apparent when we see what Asa was like in his youth, in his early years at the beginning of his reign, compared to what Asa was like in his later years, at the end of his reign. And so let's start just by looking back in chapter 14, when he was young, in the early part of his reign. Because there, off the bat, we see that Asa, again, he started off really well. Verse 1 tells us that Asa succeeded his father Abijah, who was not good at all. First Kings 15.3 tells us that Abijah, his father... He walked in all the sins of Rehoboam, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, uh, unlike uh, the heart of David. But by contrast, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as verse 2 says. Asa was a man devoted to God and that's evident in verses 3 and 4 as the first order of business of taking the throne, he removed the altars of pagan worship and commanded the people of Judah to seek the one true God of their forefathers. Asa was a righteous king. He led his people to obedience of God's word, to to keep the law and the commandment as verse 4 says. And if that's not enough, here's what really stands out about Asa in his early years. As a young and new king, he was weak and insufficient. And he knew it because he was so new to the job. He was green. He was inexperienced as a king. But look here that it was his greatest spiritual advantage. Verse 9, still early in Asa's reign, on one occasion, we're told that the Ethiopians come up against the people of Judah to declare war. Now look, this Ethiopian army was not a small army. Okay? Verse 9 says that it was a, an army of a million men. This is the only time in the Bible we see a human army on the order of millions. It was massive. This is one of the greatest assaults against the kingdom of Judah in its entire history. But notice how King Asa responded and handled the crisis. Verse 10 And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah and Marashah, and Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help, between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God, let not man prevail against you. When this foreign army came up against his kingdom, Asa's immediate reaction was to acknowledge that he and his people were totally inadequate and helpless before the Ethiopians. You see, King Asa's instinct was not to puff up his chest and remind himself that he was a very self-made man who got to this point because of all of his hard work, his diligence, his proficiency, and he'll figure out a way by his sheer willpower and determination. No, his reaction was to instantly cry out to God for help and say, Lord, we're weak. Lord, I'm supposed to be the king of Judah, but I don't know what to do. Turns out I'm not such a strong and capable man after all, because here I am staring into the face of a million-man army, and I can feel that my pedigree and competence is worth absolutely nothing. Oh, Lord, please help. Would you be the one to do what we cannot do, what I cannot do, even as king over your people. Please deliver us. And so in response to such genuine, humble prayer, verse 12 says, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And just like we see in the accounts of the conquest in Joshua, so here, God intervened in a supernatural way and totally dismantled the Ethiopian army from within. It was the finger of God himself at work. And we know this because this is what God promised back in Exodus chapter 23, verse 27. He said, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, meaning they'll flee from you without you even doing anything. And so here in verse 14, it says that the fear of the Lord, divine terror, was upon the Ethiopian army. God himself terrorized them and threw them into self-defeating panic. Again, which is exactly the pattern that we see him doing throughout the Old Testament. You see, this victory, this deliverance, was not because of the skill set of the army of Judah, it wasn't because they had the greatest Navy SEAL team or the most powerful weaponry. It wasn't even because King Asa was such a valiant and intelligent military leader in a human sense. No, Judah was clearly outnumbered, outmatched, helpless and powerless. But if there was any valiance and wisdom on King Asa's part, it was found in his instinct to quickly turn to the Lord in need, and total dependence. Asa's spiritual strength was most demonstrated in the hour of feeling his true weakness and humbly acknowledging it before God. And actually, it was in his awareness and cognizance of his inadequacy that King Asa exercised the most effective spiritual leadership by leading his people to humbly look upward to God and seek their sufficiency in Him alone. Now let this be a very important lesson, that the greatest of all spiritual leaders are those who do not rely on their own wit, on their own prowess, even their own giftedness. But true spiritual leadership is measured by the degree of how much they acknowledge their nothingness apart from God. And so they cling to God in desperation and help for everything, always. You know, if I can take this opportunity to speak to all the husbands in this room. Brothers, you are called by God to be a spiritual leader in the home. The question is not whether you are a spiritual leader or not, but whether you are a faithful and strong leader or a poor and weak one. But listen, how God defines leadership is very, very different from how the world does. What it means to be a spiritual leader in the home isn't having the loudest voice or having the strongest personality. That's often inversely related because that just means that you're a stubborn man bulldozing over your poor wife. Spiritual leadership isn't measured by how educated you are, how much money you make, but it is solely grounded And how bound you are to Christ. How humbly dependent you are on Him. How devoted you are to Him. A spiritually strong husband is the one who knows himself to be nothing apart from Christ. He knows that all of his savvy, his capability, his net worth is worthless when it comes to truly shepherding his family and leading them according to the will of god and such a man is honest about his own inadequacies and therefore in his honesty and humility he finds himself regularly on his knees asking god for his help his wisdom his guidance his correction as needed and to no surprise such a man will prove to be an excellent husband Because as a byproduct of humbly clinging to Christ, he will find himself being much more tender-hearted to his wife, cherish her as his undeserved helper, and build his family upon the bedrock of the glory and sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. This is true spiritual strength. It is rooted in the embracing of weakness, which then bears the fruit of humility, which God always blesses. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's exactly what we see in the young King Asa. It was when this eminent, esteemed king over Judah, it was when he humbled himself and cried out to God for help, like a little infant. Only then did he experience the supernatural power and sufficiency of God. And do you see what a benefit and advantage it was spiritually? That in his early years, King Asa knew himself to be inadequate, to be inexperienced, a newbie. Because he was quick to turn to God for help. Even in his supposed area of expertise. And what the world may have considered as his lowest point of public humiliation. What? You're supposed to be a king? A strong leader and you're saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. In this hour of the lowest point of public humiliation, it actually proved to be the highest point of his reign and legacy as king over Judah and the incredible victory over this vast Ethiopian army. And so we see in verse 19 uh, in chapter 15 that this spiritual legacy uh, thrived and continued for the next few decades as God blessed Asa's reign with 35 years of peace. Now, As we turn to chapter 16, we are fast forwarded to King Asa's 36th year of his reign. And if you look down in verse 13 of chapter 16, we are told that Asa reigned for a total of 41 years. And so what this tells us is that chapter 16 opens up to a window of the final few years of Asa's reign as king. He's a much older man now, a veteran king, wiser. A lot more experience. He, he, he's been around the block a few times. And people have been noticing he's been saying a lot, Oh, these young people, these young bloods. But in his 36th year, we find that King Asa faced another military crisis. Only this time, it was against the northern kingdom of Israel, led by King Baasha. Again, keep in mind that by this point, the once united nation of Israel, the twelve tribes, they had been fractured and divided between the north and the south. The north retained the name Israel, whereas the south was called Judah. So when you read first and second kings and first second chronicles, whenever you see Israel versus Judah, that's what we're talking about. Israel is referring to the northern tribes, the ten and a half tribes, and the, the Judah is referring to the southern tribes, essentially Judah and Benjamin. And so here in Asa's thirty-sixth year as king. Israel of the north came to fight against Judah in the south. Why? Because if you look back in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, it says that Asa gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. And they were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. Basically, what had been happening over the past couple of decades was that the people of Israel saw how much God was blessing the people of Judah in the south. Because again, Asa proved to be such a faithful king unto the Lord. And so many northerners left to join Judah. It's kind of like how a lot of North Koreans defect to South Korea because they see it's a lot better down there. And so in light of this, the king of the north Of Israel, King Baasha, he wanted to stop this mass exodus out of Israel down into Judah. That's why chapter 16, verse 1, begins by saying that he did this that he might permit no one to go out or come into Asa, king of Judah. And so, what he did was the northern king ordered the forces of Israel to occupy a city called Ramah, which was Judah's territory in the south, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, this posed a serious threat to the kingdom of Judah because, first of all, it was effectively cutting off supply and access to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, where Asa's throne was. And as you know, when war, if you can starve the enemy's resources, you're well on your path to victory and domination. But secondly, remember I just said that Ramah was 10 miles north of Jerusalem, where the people of Israel, the army of Israel, had uh, encamped. And the fact that the army of Israel was there was deeply concerning because the city of Jerusalem was most vulnerable from the north due to its geography and topography. And so all this to say, the kingdom of Judah was met with another dire military crisis. Now, what would King Asa do at this point in the 36th year of his reign? Verse 2. He took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, who lived in Damascus. And he told them, there is a covenant, a treaty between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending you silver and gold. Go break your covenant. your treaty treated with, with the northern tribes of Israel, Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. Now listen, this was a brilliant chess move. Because the nation of Syria was to the north of Israel. And so Judah sent silver and gold via messenger to Syria, telling them to go attack Israel's northern border so that Israel would have to divert their attention from besieging Ramah to their south and go ward off the Syrians up in the north. Let me put it like this. Imagine North America's layout. You have Canada, and below that you have the U.S., and then below that you have Mexico. Imagining that Judah, where King Asa was, that Judah was Mexico, uh, then Israel would be the U.S., to the north of Judah, and then above that, Canada would be like Syria. And so looking at it from the vantage point of Mexico, representing Judah, it was as if the U.S. invaded Mexico, probably on the border of, let's say, Texas, and so Mexico decided to give money to Canada to tell them to go attack their northern border, the Montana or North Dakota or something, so that the US would have to divert its resources away from the southern border of attacking Mexico to defend their northern border to defend against the Canadians. And that's exactly what King Asa did, only in Israel, not in North America. It was a brilliant strategy, which worked. So, verse 5, it says that when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he let his work cease, and so he went to the north. Again, this was ingenious on the part of King Asa. But notice the difference in how he handled this crisis compared to back in chapter 14 against the Ethiopians. There, as a young and inexperienced king, he cried out to the Lord. That was his first order of business. He had no business doing anything else because he was totally reliant on God. But here, as an older, more resourceful, more savvy king, he had so much experience, political power, military know-how, that he forgot to ask the Lord for help. Near the end of his life, Asa began to forget about God because he felt like he didn't need God anymore. He knew what to do. And God was not pleased. And so he spoke by way of prophet Hanani in verse 7. Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army, yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hands. But you have done foolishly. God rebukes King Asa, saying, Hey Asa, you've changed. When you were young, you were so quick to turn to me for help. But now in your older age, with experience and having learned the ropes, you've grown self-sufficient. You never bother to turn to me. You've become proud. You see, being resourceful is a serious spiritual disadvantage. It's not a sin in and of itself. Resourcefulness, savvy, skill, wisdom, Intelligence, it can be leveraged powerfully for the glory of God. He is the one who imparts the gift of intellect and skill. But we must understand that it is so often a disadvantage because of our sinful motives. Because we look at it, we wield it, and it makes us quick to trust in ourselves, and we no longer feel the need to depend on God. And what all this shows us is the propensity of our flesh to wander away from God unless we as believers are vigilant about watching over our own souls. I mean, take a look at King Asa. He started off fantastically. What a man of God he was. What a prayerful man. What a king filled with godly wisdom and strength. What a breath of fresh air from his wicked father Abijah, who led Judah to idolatry and sin. But years later, King Asa looked very different from his youth. He was a changed man for the worse. Now, do you realize that as a Christian, you can become older, more experienced in life, more experienced in church and ministry, as it were, but all the while spiritually regress over the years. It's not a given that simply by the passing of years or that physical maturity corresponds to spiritual maturity. And it's not only possible for those things to be inversely related, but this is actually the the default trajectory, that they are inversely related. If we leave our souls unwatched and our own pride unchecked, because we will drift away from the Lord. Because that is the viciousness and the power and influence of our indwelling sin as believers. Again, this is why Jesus calls believers to a life of striving, to fight daily the good fight of faith. It is, it is a spiritual warfare within. It is a life of pushing against the current and that current being chiefly our own sinful flesh. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I not only growing older in age, in physical age, but growing in Christ, growing in holiness, increasingly conformed to His image and to His will? Or am I growing more proud more self-sufficient, more stubborn as the years go by. That's what happened to King Asa as he got older. And look at verse 10. Upon hearing the rebuke from the prophet Hanani, how did King Asa respond? It says that he was angry with the seer, the prophet, and he put him into stocks in prison for he was in a rage with him because of this. Asa stubbornly refused to listen to God. And Proverbs 16.31 says that gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. For the believer, old age ought to be a mark of greater humility, godly wisdom, and spiritual maturity. But that's not always the case. As we see see in King Asa, over the years, he only grew in pride. He became a stubborn old man, headstrong, and unteachable. And so later again in verse 12, in the 39th year of his reign, a few years later, and just two years before his death, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in this severe disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. He was stubborn until the end. Again, notice here how Asa's stubbornness and self sufficiency didn't grow in a vacuum. But it grew in the abundance of resources that he had at his disposal. He had all the access to modern medicine, the technology, the innovation. Now, are these things evil in and of themselves? Is it wrong to utilize them? Of course not. But these things served to draw him away from God because he put his trust in these things as opposed to first and foremost ultimately putting his trust in God and his wisdom and his will. As John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. You know, I think we often underestimate the sinfulness of our own hearts and that we are fully capable of making idols out of even the good things that God gives to us. And look, King Asa's environment and context is very similar to ours, don't you think? Living here in the Bay Area, we have everything we could ever need. We're in the capital of big tech, immersed in affluence and comforts. But are you aware that this environment where God has placed you, it breeds a very particular culture and mindset? Are you aware of your surroundings and the effect that it has in training your mind to think a very certain way? You know, if you go to L.A., there's a very distinct culture there, which is eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, life is all about today's pleasures. It's not Hollywood culture. Entertainment, fun, luxuries. You know, when my wife and I used to live in L.A., we, we were in this one city for a couple years. And uh, I found out that the population there had a very strong cultural bent in valuing the appearance of luxury and glamour, especially really nice and fancy cars, even if they couldn't afford them. And they valued those things so much so that some people who weren't as well off and couldn't afford them, they would get together and they would chip in to lease a nice sports car and they would share it throughout the week. So that on Mondays and Tuesdays, you get to park it on your driveway in this little thinky apartment, this Maserati, and then Wednesdays and Thursdays I get them and oh, you got the weekend so you pay up a little bit extra, you pay 40% and these other guys pay 30%. That's what it's like, that's how much they value it, that's the culture. How many houses have I seen that are all run down and man, they got some nice matte black Maseratis or whatever, that's their priority, and that they're being taught to think that way, to value that. That's LA culture. But are you aware of what Bay Area culture is? The chief virtue of security, longevity, responsibility, which is a good thing to be sure. Planning your life, career, retirement, the best health care, the best education, building up the walls of your fortress and kingdom on earth. That is distinctly Bay Area. Putting every effort into preserving your life on earth. We're a very resourceful people here. But again, have you considered that what you think are obvious priorities is not actually shared by the rest of the world? And that it may be that the way you think and operate is in large part a product of the environment in which you live. And God is calling all of us to constantly renew our minds and to retrain our conscience according to his word. Again, none of these things are sinful in and of themselves, nor are they wrong. Scripture talks much about the wisdom of planning, financial prudence, preparing for rainy days. But what is our heart and attitude as we pursue these things? Do we idolize them? And the answer is far more often yes than no. More than we care to admit. Do do we elevate them over other things that God deems much more important, namely our spiritual well-being? Are we more concerned with the maturation of our treasury bonds or CDs and not so much the maturation of our souls to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Let King Asa's life testify to you that if we are not fastidious in keeping watch over our souls, we will be pulled away from God. If the Christian life is merely a passive thing to you, you will be swept away by the current. Do not underestimate the pride of your own heart, the temptation that ever lurks to place the scepter of sovereignty into your own hands. You know, as I think of my own life, through all my years as a Christian, throughout every step of my Christian walk, I can testify to you without a doubt, my greatest spiritual enemy has been myself. My pride. My fleshly desire for control. The indwelling sin that constantly keeps trying to assert my own independence and dominance apart from God, continually at war against my desire to trust God, to relinquish all control and say, Lord, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. And this is why resourcefulness is such a spiritual disadvantage because it makes self-reliance all the more conducive to the detriment and destruction of our souls. But church, doesn't all of this also give us some perspective on why we experience trials? Why God brings upon us difficulties, hardship, suffering, and sorrows? They are gifts of love from God to protect us from ourselves. They are designed to make us feel our weakness and so drive us to Him. Look back in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It says, For a long time, Israel was without the true God under the leadership of King Abijah, Asa's father. And they were without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress, They turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought Him. He was found by them. Distress is what God uses to turn us to Him. Beloved, trials and sorrows are God's sanctifying grace at work in us to keep and to safeguard our souls, to cause us to persevere unto the end of the race of faith. If not for trials, we would all end up walking away from God. Because without them, we would all grow in unrestrained self-reliance, you see. But by His steadfast love and faithfulness to us, He sends the Ethiopian armies into our lives to bring us to our knees, to foster within us the spirit of young Asa, A spirit of dependence, humility, and faith in his abiding presence. And in fact, isn't this a realization that the Apostle Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He speaks of a thorn in the flesh that was afflicting him. Whatever it may have been, he doesn't specify. Perhaps it was some sudden mysterious bodily affliction, an unexplainable ailment. Or perhaps some friends and family that he trusted suddenly turned against him and started causing him immense sorrow. Or maybe it was some intense spiritual torment by the devil. But whatever this thorn in the flesh was, Paul no doubt spent countless hours in prayer asking, Why, God, would you do this? Why, when I'm serving you, God, when I'm trying to be faithful to you, why does it feel like you are punishing me? But then Paul came to understand that all of this was to keep him from being conceited. To protect from the swelling of pride. To prevent the tumor of arrogance from progressing. And God confirmed to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power. My power is made perfect in weakness. And that's when Paul finally understood, Ah, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I am weak, I am most reliant on the power of Christ, on the sufficiency of His grace and the perfect trustworthiness of his will. And so, you see, the Apostle Paul, he came to a point of looking beyond the painful thorn itself. And by faith, he saw the rose of divine love that was being given to him through his afflictions. Christian, every prick of the thorn that you've ever felt in your life, every tear that you have shed as a Christian, it was all God's tender confirmation. You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. And no one will snatch you out of my hand, not even you. You see, church, this account of King Asa's life is not only meant to be a stern warning of the dangers of our sinful hearts, which it is, But it is also meant to awaken our spiritual palate for the true sweetness of trials. To see how much we need them. To almost beg for them upon seeing what a good man with a good start is capable of. So that we might pray, Lord, please never leave me alone to my own devices. Because I see now that if you do, I will end up like this. Never let me go my own way. Interrupt my life. Intervene in your perfect wisdom and grace. Do whatever it takes to keep me on the straight and narrow path. And by faith, church, we must fight to believe that every trial is indeed God fulfilling His promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you are prone to wander and leave me and forsake me, I will never leave you and forsake you. I am holding fast to you. And praise God for the sufficiency of His grace, that He knows our need and meets our needs better than we do. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, listen, all of this, this is really at the heart of the gospel. Because, friend, you are weak and helpless before God Almighty. You are a sinner before His holy presence. There's nothing you can do to atone for your own sins. You cannot save yourself. It is pitifully senseless to rely on yourself. But this is the good news that God has done what you could not do by sending His own Son to atone for your sins, to fulfill perfect righteousness on your behalf, and to suffer in the place of all who trust in Him. This is what God is. He is the one who gives and gives and gives abundantly to all who turn to Him for help and mercy and grace. He never refuses those who turn to Him. And so humble yourself. Confess your sin and helplessness. Turn to Christ. For help and mercy and forgiveness, and you will be saved. Blessed is the one who puts his trust in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that indeed is living and active and searches the depths of our hearts. We thank you for pre- preserving so necessary and powerful a lesson for us that we might consider our own souls and we might be humbled by your grace and truly seek to live humble lives dependent on your grace. And Lord, we thank you for the very precious gift of the Lord's Supper, this sacrament, which does indeed remind us on a regular basis that apart from Christ, we are nothing that he is our very food for our souls and we cannot live apart from him. And so I ask now that as we prepare our hearts to take it, that you would help us by your spirit to receive it by faith and that you would set apart these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup to minister to our souls and to confirm visibly and tangibly the very truth of the gospel. In his most precious name we pray. Amen.